Turn with me in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. In the past few weeks, we have faced a global pandemic that has resulted in thousands of deaths, millions of people unemployed, and the stock market in a downward spiral, and our government about ready to take on trillions of dollars of more debt. And along with these cataclysmic events comes panic and fear and anxiety. How is a Christian, how are we as believers to live a life of faith in a world that is filled with fear? You know, many times when we are filled with fear, we run to the quickest source of comfort. In these weeks of pandemic, we may run to our stockbroker. We may run to a counselor. We may run to a doctor. Or we may run to our best friend. And you know, none of these are wrong. None of these are wrong. But who should we run to first? And that's what we're going to look at this morning in Hebrews 4. We're going to look at that we should run to our great high priest, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. So let me read to you from God's Word, Hebrews 14, 4, 4 verses 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. This chapter, chapter 4 in Hebrews, is talking about Jews and Jewish Christians before 70 AD, before the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. And at this time, there were many Jews in the church, or many Jews close to the church, that were about to come to Christ, but they weren't. Why? Because of fear of persecution. And we also have many Jewish Christians who are facing the bombardment of persecution. And along with these persecutions comes the fear of financial ruin through the loss of the job or loss of business, the fear of not being able to provide food for your family, the worries that your family or your spouse could be attacked or even lose their life. These were the fears that many of these Christians were going through back then. And these are many of the same fears that we are facing today. Some of these Christians back then began to waver in their faith. Is Jesus really the Messiah, they said? Is His sacrifice sufficient for my sins? Should I stay with the religion of faith, or should I go back to the religion 
that I can see? Should I go back to the religion of the high priest that I can see, that I can touch? Should I go back to Judaism? Well, the first thing that we want to look at this morning is that Jesus is our great high priest. Why is Jesus our great high priest? And what we see from Leviticus 16, you can look at that later, what we see from this text is the Day of Atonement. On this day, the high priest would once a year go into the Holy of Holies to offer a sacrifice for the sins of all of Israel. And before he entered in, he had to offer a sacrifice for his own sins. And after this, he would take the blood of a sacrifice through the outer doors and then through the doors of the holy place and finally through the curtains into the very holy of holies. And there he would make atonement for all of Israel. This had to be repeated year after year after year because the sacrifice weren't perfect, and neither was the priesthood. Look back at verse 14. It says this, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us lay hold fast our confession. Now notice the word sense there. It shows a comparison. We're comparing the great high priest, with the Levitical priesthood. And the Levitical priesthood, we didn't need to trust in anymore. We didn't need to trust in unending sacrifices since we now have a great high priest who did a perfect work. Think about that. Jesus, our great high priest, after living a perfect life, made a one-time perfect sacrifice, the Lamb of God, for our sins on the cross. And then he went through the heavens. Now think about that. He, he went through the heavens. He didn't go through a man-made building. He didn't go through man-made doors. He didn't go through man-made curtains. He went through the heavens. What does that mean? It, mean, it meant that he passed through the atmosphere. He passed through outer space. And he went right into heaven, into the very presence of God the Father. There he sat down. He sat down at the right hand of God the Father, showing his work of atonement for our sins had been completed. Listen to what John 17.4 says, I glorified thee on earth, having accomplished the work of which thou hast given me to do. Notice Jesus didn't say this. He didn't say, I accomplish some of the work. That's what an earthly priest would say. That's what the Levitical priest would say. He would say, I've done the best I could do. But the best that a Levitical priest could do wouldn't be good enough. It would never be good enough. In fact, It was never meant to be good enough. You see, the priest's work in the Old Testament always was a shadow. 
It was always a shadow, and the same for the sacrifice. Both of them pointed to the reality of Christ. They were shadows pointing to the reality of Christ. Jesus is our great high priest because he lived a perfect life and he offered himself a perfect sacrifice. And you know what? It doesn't get any better than perfect, does it? Well, not only that, but our great high priest gives us hope. He gives us assurance. He gives us certainty, especially during times of tragedy. Look at verse 14 again. Look at the end of verse 14. It says, let us hold fast our confession because of the great work of our high priest. The believing Jew could take hold and hold firmly to his faith. He could be immovable. He could stand in grace and not move from it. The believing Jew didn't have to waver. He didn't have to fear. He didn't have to worry because of persecution. In fact, he could even rejoice in his persecution, knowing that his great high priest was with him and would never leave him or forsake him. James 1-2 says this, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. So how, how does this apply to you? How does this apply to you when you're facing a pandemic? Well, Jesus said this in John 14, 6. He said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Do you see what he's saying here? Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, I am the great high priest, and I am the only one who can be the mediator between God and man. He's saying an earthly priest can't do it. Moses couldn't do it. And you know, in this age of every path, there's many paths to get to God? No, there aren't. No other religion can do it. And this isn't me saying this. This is Jesus saying this. He's saying, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the only way, he's saying. I am the only mediator. Now, some would say, Maybe I need to try to get there on my own. There are some out there in computer land that might be thinking, God wants me to live out the law in order to have a relationship with him. But you know what it says in Galatians 3.10? It says, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. That means if you're trying to get to God, you have to live out the law perfectly. And none of us can do that. That's why Jesus is the great high priest. That's why he is the only mediator between God and man, because he came and lived a perfect life for us. 
so that when we put our faith and trust in him, he gives us a perfect record, and then all of our sins are passed to him, past, present, and even future. Now, many times when we face the trials of this life, like this pandemic, we may have a tendency to trust in ourselves. We may have a habit of trusting in our past accomplishments. You know, there may be some who lived through World War II. They're saying, I can live, if I could live through that, I can live through this. So we're many times tempted to trust in ourselves. Well, in Luke chapter 10, verses 17 to 20, Jesus rebukes his disciples for thinking in the same way, for doing that. The disciples were sent out to do ministry in Luke 10. You remember the story, 70 of them were sent out two by two to do ministry. And when they came back, they were filled with joy. They were so pumped up. They were excited because they had seen the power of God working in their lives. They had seen demons come out of people because of the gospel being proclaimed. They probably felt at this point that they were now famous, that they were now powerful, that they were now accomplishing great things. And so what does Jesus reply to them? What does he say to them in verse 20 of Luke 10? He says this, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. What Jesus is saying to his disciples and to us is to stop fondling all your accomplishments that you've had on earth. Don't rejoice in your ministry triumphs. And to us, don't rejoice in your worldly victories. Jesus says this, Rejoice that your name is written in heaven. What does that mean? Well, you know when your name is engraved on a trophy or a plaque or a medal, a gold medal, it it can mean that you've accomplished something great. It's a sign that you've done something significant and that you are being honored for your achievement, right? But the problem with these trophies, and even a gold medal, you know, a gold medal at the Olympics means you're the best at some sport, right? You're the best in the world. But one day, even those gold medals and those plaques and those trophies will all melt away when the earth is destroyed and the new heavens and new earth come, right? They will all be destroyed, So much more than this. Compare that to having your name engraved in heaven. It means that you are God's child. That you are His saint. That you are infinitely loved. That you are totally righteous. That you are forever forgiven. That you are already seated in heavenly places. And nothing can separate you from His love. Nothing can take that away, not even a pandemic. When we hold fast our confession 
that our names are engraved in heaven, then our high priest gives us great hope. And he also gives us great sympathy. Look at verse 15. It says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. My wife, Denise, had an uncle. He lived to 103. His name was Uncle Jerry. He was a great guy. And I I remember talking to him when he was around 86. And and he said this to me. He um, He said, Mark, one of the biggest problems that I have with old age is I keep outliving my doctors. (laughs) You know, I didn't say to him, you know, maybe get younger doctors, but I didn't say that. Um, So he said, I keep outliving my doctors. And every time he would outlive a doctor, he'd have to tell the next doctor all of his ailments. He would have to go through his organ recital, as my mom used to call it, um, and, and tell the doctor all his new ailments. And then that doctor would die, and he'd have to go to a new doctor. You see, the Levitical priesthood had the same limitations, the limitation of death. Jesus is our great high priest because he's an eternal priest. John 17 says, he is always praying for us. He is always strengthening us. That's what Galatians 2.20 says. It says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who lives, but Christ lives in me. Can you think about that? The creator of the universe lives inside of you and strengthens you. And then in this passage, it says, he sympathizes with your weaknesses. How, How does he do that? He does that through the incarnation. Um, The incarnation, think, Christ came and put on flesh. God put on flesh. Jesus is the infinite God-man. He is 100% God. He is 100% man. And according to verse 15, he was tempted in all the ways that we are, yet without sin yet without sin. How have you been tempted in the past three weeks? What weaknesses have you seen during this pandemic? Have you been concerned or worried about the health of yourself or your loved ones or your spouse? Have you been concerned about your retirement as you watch the stock market spiral down? Have you feared the loss of employment or not being paid for weeks? Have you wondered what's going to happen to our country that keeps going into debt? You see, Jesus knows what you're going through. That's what it says here in this passage. He understands your pain He understands your temptations because he walked on this earth and faced them himself, yet without sin. Now, to sympathize with our weaknesses 
means that he understands our humanity. He understands our frailties. Many times we think that the Savior being with us means that he's watching over us, waiting for us to fail, to pounce upon us. That's not what this passage is saying. It it, it says nothing of the sort. Instead, Jesus is cheering us on in battle. It's like having an older brother who's 10 years older than you, who's by your side saying, I've been there before 10 years ago. And I've been through that before, and I've been there myself, and I want to help you. He doesn't say, I've been there before, and this is what I expect from you. No, he says, I've been there, and I want you to prevail. Now, some people think, some Christians think, that because Christ is sympathetic with us, that he wants us to escape all the trials of life. I've even heard people think that that Christians, if they're truly a Christian, they won't get sick during a pandemic. That's not true. Our great high priest will be with us, will help us, and he will help us not to go around the trials. Sometimes he does, but most of the times he helps us to go through the trials with his help. About a week and a half ago, I wrote an article that went out to the church. It was talking about John chapter 13 through chapter 16. And if you remember that time, Jesus was at the Last Supper, and he's with his apostles, and he's, he's eating with them, and, and all of a sudden he says this to them. He says, one of you, one of you is going to betray me. Now, you can imagine what that did to the apostles, how fearful it made them, how how they were totally shocked to think that one of their friends, one of the people that they loved, that they had been together, a band of brothers for three years, that thinking that one of them would betray the Lord that they loved, they were in shock. They were looking at each other, probably in bewilderment. Why would anybody do that? And then Jesus says a few minutes later, I'm going to leave you. And I'm going to a place that you cannot come. So their whole world then began to crash down. Why would you leave us? Where are you going? Why can't we come with you? And that's what Peter asked. And then Peter finally said, I'll die for you. And you know what Jesus said. He said, you won't die for me, Peter. In fact, you're going to betray me three times before the cock crows. These disciples were in fear. They were in dismay. They didn't know what to do. So how did Jesus, how did Jesus sympathize with what they were going through. Well, listen to what he said to them in John 14, verses 1 through 3. I, I memorized uh, John 14, 2 when I was in fifth grade, um, and I only memorized verse 2. I wish I would have memorized 3, because that's really, in a sense, more important. Verse 2 says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place 
for you. Now, that's great. He's telling his disciples, you got a place in heaven, right? But in verse 3, it says this, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You see what Jesus' message was to his disciples? I will always be with you. I will be with you now, and I will be with you in heaven when you die. And then in verse four, in chapter 14 and 16, he tells them, And I will not leave you as orphans. I will send the Holy Spirit to be with you, and He will be with you for the rest of your life. I will never leave you nor forsake you, Jesus is saying no matter what you're going through. And that is the message of the entire Bible. It goes all the way back to Joshua. Remember Joshua, when he's getting ready to take over for Moses uh, to lead two million people, God says to him, do not tremble or be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you. He's with you. Do not fear. And Jesus told his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled. It kind of reminds me of the life of my mom. You know, when you can look at a life from beginning to end, and I can look at that now since she's in heaven, you, you can see the trials that that person, your, your loved one, went through. And, and I can see from the very beginning she had two stepfathers, and one was abusive, and then uh, her, her son, not me, my brother, became schizophrenic. And then right before she died, she faced Alzheimer's. And you might look at that and say, what a life of tragedy. What a life of sorrow. But I don't see it that way. I see it as a glorious life because she lived for the glory of her Savior. She lived for the glory of her high priest, who gave her great mercy and great grace, who saved her from her sins and gave her her righteousness that's not her own. So to live in the midst of a trial for His glory is something that's worthwhile to do. And she, she even did it with great joy as a great example to me, and I'm sure many of you who knew her, a great example to you. Your high priest understands what you're going through. And he's ready to help you in your time of need. And because of this, our great high priest also gives us great confidence. Look at verse 16. It says, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Back during the Civil War, there was a young military officer, and he was trying to get into the White House to see President Lincoln. And he tried to get in, and it was an emergency. He needed to see the president, and he couldn't get in. So he sat on the steps of the White House in despair, head hung down, 
He was sad. He needed to see the president. And a little boy walked up to him. And the little boy looked at him and said, Why are you so sad, sir? Why are you so sad? And the officer looked at the son, or this kid, and, and said, I need to see the president. I need to see the president. And the little boy said, I can help you. And, and the officer kind of shook his head and just put his head down and kind of grunted and thought to himself, how can you help me? You're just a little kid. And so the little boy looked at him and said, come, follow me. And the officer just got up with his head down and grunted, you know, and just followed, looking at his feet, thinking nothing's going to come of this. So he followed the little boy, and the little boy walked up the steps and walked right into the hallway of the White House, then walked down the hall and walked right into the Oval Office. This little boy, his name was Todd Lincoln. And this officer should have had great confidence that day. He should have had great joy that he knew that he was walking with the Son. He would have had great confidence. And that is the great confidence that we can have all the time, knowing that we can come to our great high priest and have confidence that any time, in any trial, especially the trials that we're facing today, that we can go boldly, confidently, and before the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. One author says this, that mercy is needed for our past failures and grace for our present and future work. But many times, many times, we look at ourselves we look inside of ourselves as Christians and we still see our sin and, and we don't have confidence. And sometimes we even run from God because of this instead of run confidently to Him. One pastor said this, for every look at sin, we need to look ten times at the gospel, but most of the times we do just the opposite, right? One author says this about this struggle. He, he was a pastor. He says this, When I was in seminary, I had no idea how messed up most people's lives were. But the greatest problem I have is not providing answers to problems, but convincing people that their sins have not caused God to write them off. So many of the people that I deal with believe that they are worthless to God, and as a result, they are hopeless. We must listen carefully to the wisdom in these words. They believe that they are worthless, and as a result, they are helpless. Where are you this morning? Are you feeling worthless before God, and therefore feeling helpless? Or are you confidently going into His presence? How are you facing the pandemic today? Are you facing it in fear? Are you facing it in faith? 
Are you confident in your standing with the Lord Jesus Christ and His willingness to come to help you in your time of need? God has said this in His Word. Hebrews 2.18 He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. 2 Peter 1.3 says His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Philippians 1.13 says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with the temptation will provide a way of escape so that you can stand under it. In closing, about 11 or 12 years ago, we went down to Florida on vacation. And we stayed at a place that was on the ocean, and we swam in the pool almost the whole vacation. Now, at that point, Emily was about four or five years old, And before this, we had put the water wingies, you remember those things, the water wingies, uh, the float on her, every buoyant thing you can think of, so that there was no way she was ever going to sink. I mean, you could probably push her down and she would shoot out of the water 10 feet. There was no way she would drown. But we decided at about four or five that she needed to learn how to swim. So her dad started teaching her. And so you know what that was like. And, and the other thing is, as I was teaching her, I was sympathizing with her because I remember being a little kid and I remember being deadly afraid of drowning, of sinking to the bottom of the pool, of dad maybe turning and then not noticing that I was on the bottom. That was a great fear of mine when I was a kid. So I was, I was sympathetic with her having the same fears. Well, I held her, taught her how to float, taught her how to, you know, paddle, taught her how to kick, taught her all that stuff, and then taught her how to dive into the pool and start swimming. And then I had her sit, stand up on the side, and I got away from her about 15 feet, and I said, okay, come to your dad. Trust me. I'll be there. I'll help you. You're not going to go to the bottom of the pool. And she stood there and said, I can't, Dad. I'm afraid. So I stopped and we put the wingies back on and swam in the pool for another couple hours. And then I tried to do it again. Put her on the side of the pool and tried to convince her, trust your dad. I'll be there for you. I'll help you. I will not let you go under. And finally... She jumped in, she dove in, and she swam to me, and she got to me, and I pulled her out of the pool, and I said, yes! And I didn't do that because I would have dropped her. I I held her and said, yes! Right? And I took her back to the side of the pool, and I, I moved back another five feet, but to her, it was probably looked like 50 feet. And again, I said, okay, trust your dad dive into the pool. Come on. And she said, no, dad, you're too far. Come closer. Come." Cl-. I said, no, you can do it. 
I'll be there. If you don't make it, I will be there for you. And finally, she faced her fear. She faced the trial. She trusted her father. And she made it swimming to me. That's where we're at today. Our great high priest is telling us to trust him, to come to him, to have confidence in him, in him, that he will come to him, to come to us in our time of need. We need to trust our high priest for the hope of future glory, for sympathy in present trials, for confidence in knowing that He hears our prayers and is willing to come to our aid in our time of need on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, We thank you for your word that gives us great hope in a world that is constantly changing, constantly in flux. Help us, Lord, not to find comfort in this world, but help us to rejoice in the unchangeable fact that our names are written in heaven, that we who are truly yours are already seated in heavenly places and that nothing can take away that from us. That you will never leave us nor forsake us no matter what trial we face, even a pandemic. Lord, we ask that the gospel will continue to be proclaimed and that your gospel and your kingdom will grow during this worldwide trial. Father, we also pray for your mercies in bringing an end to this virus. For your honor and for your glory, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen.